Do you have what it takes to save the beautiful Nurse Kate from the evil clutches of the Chinese warlord Li Dang? Well, let's find out with Heart of China this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 112 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back with you once again to talk about a game from the Dawson Free Windows XP Gaming era. Holy crap, guys, I'm so happy to be back. Uh, I know I said at the end of the last episode that I was going to try and get the Heart of China episode out for, you know, the end of July and then have the next episode out for the end of August. And um, yeah, that didn't happen. So uh, you did get your your episode for uh, for July and you got, uh, you know, two episodes in uh, in June and, and all that. So, you know, we're still on our, our one a month, uh, our one a month trend. And, uh, you know, I was being a little... Uh, ambitious i think i probably could have done it but um so yeah this whole parenting thing i've been doing it for you know almost two years now i've been podcasting way longer than i've been a dad but um yeah so i've been sick for like a month straight and i know everyone who has young kids and who had young kids and now has older kids will totally understand uh and and will probably commiserate but yeah for the past couple of weeks i've just been like wiped out to the point where the pat this past week uh basically every night i had like these weird flu-like symptoms and like my body hurt and uh <laughs> over the weekend i actually some something weird happened with like a nerve and i actually went to physio this morning and they told me that like my first rib on my right side was like being pulled funny and was like poking up through my shoulder and was blocking a nerve and restricting some blood vessels so I could like barely walk over the weekend. It was super weird and uh, at times a little bit uh, concerning <laughs> maybe because I could like barely lift up like a cup of coffee because my muscles were like not working. Anyways, it was uh, it was crazy. So all that to say, yeah, I've been sick for quite a while and uh, looks like I'm on the other side of it and I'm happy to be here, happy to be podcasting. Show got done, you know, the prep, uh, prep work all got done and all that. So um you know, let's get right to it. It's uh, summer is is ending. It's it's the end of August. We're rolling into September, and uh, yeah. So let's let's roll right into this. We've got a very very interesting show this time around, and we are going to start it off with uh, with a voicemail and a uh, a traditionally wordy uh, message from uh, or email from from trolls, but uh, totally uh, acceptable. Because I asked for it. So uh, let's launch things off with a voicemail from a relatively new listener of the show and uh, and powerhouse listener of the show. Uh, I've uh, been tracking uh, Raytheon, Raytheon Hudson. I've been tracking his, uh, his listening of the back catalog of the show. He basically found the show in the past few months and powered through the entire back catalog, uh, commenting to me on Twitter with, uh, his comments on basically each episode. And, uh, he's fired off a couple of, uh, voicemails to me. I'll be playing them over the next few episodes. And here is, uh, here's the first one. So take it away, Raytheon. 
Hey Joe, Raytheon Hudson here from Xpound Resurgence. Man, I love that podcast that you've been making. I know there's the Space Quest historian, but you, sir, I dare say, are the game mechanics historian. You're highlighting basically where all the games came from. For example, I did not know that there was text-based games that uh, you had to actually type in what you're doing. Pick lock, pick door, pick chest, pick nose. I don't think that was in there. But anyway, I just recently listened to your Carmageddon and the uh, Baldur's Gate podcast. Ah, bringing back the memories. The second I heard uh, the Baldur's Gate theme song for the main menu, ah, (laughs) I was in the middle of work, but uh, ah, those feelings, the suspense, the eerie feeling that something is going to be horribly wrong or that you, the main character, are going to be in peril somehow, or save the day, either way. The space hamster will stand and deliver. Ah, man, I miss playing Baldur's Gate. I never got to finish it, it was such a long game, but I enjoyed the mechanics, I enjoyed seeing the landscape, it was all so varying and all the creatures are so different, not to mention the AI of the game. I especially liked how the... uh, the alignment of the different characters was uh, they could conflict with each other which is pretty impressive I didn't realize that if you left what's his name Zan or Zar and Montaran together for too long they'll actually fight and kill each other I didn't realize they would do that but that's amazing they could actually program semi-realistic conflicts between different characters I kind of wish that Boo was an actual person in the uh, character selection tab on the side, but no, he just happens to be an immovable item in, uh, what's his name? I can't remember, that, that big guy's, um, the big guy who has Boo uh, in his pocket, I would guess. <laughs> he has only two arms and no more space. <laughs> Oh, I should definitely click on someone my own size. <laughs> so many good quotes from that game. Ah, man, I love your podcast just brings back the memories and helps relate them to today and how games got to where they are. So thank you for your podcast. Oh, and uh, after this, there's some bumpers that I might like to share with you. So uh, add them in the show if you feel like. Okay, here goes. And I'll snip out the rest of those and uh, and throw them into my my stable of of bumpers, so you guys will hear them uh, throughout the uh, the following shows. Thanks so much, Raytheon and uh, and and Minsk. I believe Minsk is uh, is the big dude that uh, that carries Boo around in Baldur's Gate, or is it Baldur's Gate Two? Can't remember. Anyways, thanks thanks for those comments, and looking forward to uh, to the rest of your uh, rest of your comments and. Uh, in a way, I sort of feel bad that that you you've caught up to the uh, to to the show, and now you have to wait for the the plotting uh, plotting monthly, hopefully, schedule of uh, of you know the past uh, the past little while. You won't be able to burn through like you know two or three of these a day. So thanks for that, and uh, we'll hear more from Raytheon in following episodes. Next up, we have an email from my good friend, and uh, you know. A, fellow uh adventure game round tabler and uh buddy trolls the space quest historian and uh he's following up on 
on some stuff that I talked about in the last episode about the uh, the, the demo scene. So uh, Trolls writes, Hi, Joe. I caught your episode on One Must Fall 2097. I should read this like trolls. I caught your episode on One Must Fall 2097. I, no, I'm not going to do that. Let's start over. Sorry about that, trolls. I caught your episode on One Must Fall 2097, a game that I have fond memories of playing as a kid, uh, mostly in hot seat multiplayer, causing irreparable rifts in friendships. I had no idea you could pull off finishing moves or unlock secret characters. As someone else on your show said, it's the mark of a good game that it keeps surprising you for years and years down the line. Anyway, you were talking about the excellent tracker music in OMF during your show, and my name was mentioned. Always a pleasure when that happens, and it's not along the lines of, oh my god, another 10 plus minute voicemail from Mr. Never Shuts the F Up Historian. <laughs> you, uh, you wanted to know more about the demo scene and how trackers work. Well, I was never actually a part of the demo scene. I knew of it. I watched intros and demos as a kid, and I went to LAN parties, but I never belonged to a group or knew anyone who actually were. I admired the demo scene and always wanted to be part of it, but never was. I did, however, get into tracker music at an early age. As a child, I wanted to write my own music. Ever since I listened to Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells and looked back at the back cover where my young mind was blown away by the fact that Mike apparently played every instrument on the record himself. And being a young child, my immediate reaction was, of course, if that guy can do it, why can't I? Turns out, instruments are tricky to play. They require practice and effort, none of which I have the patience for. But then, a friend from school showed me Scream Tracker 2. It was version 2.2 for DOS, which puts us around the year 1990, making me 10 years old. I didn't have a Sound Blaster card, but ST2 supported output via the PC speaker. Crackly, distorted, barely recognizable output, but digital sound nonetheless. I was immensely fascinated with this and soon began composing, I use that term very loosely, my own music for it. Uh, There was no manual, so my friend and I were figuring out stuff along the way. Years go on, and I start using Scream Tracker 3, which is a tremendous improvement over ST2, despite being an unfinished beta, and then moved on to Impulse Tracker, which was more or less a carbon copy of ST3 without all the crashing and undocumented features that also made it crash. Yes, tracker purists will say Impulse can do a lot more than ST3 ever could, and they're right, but daddy's telling the story here, kids, pay attention and get off my lawn. The point is, you wanted to know how trackers work. So let's compare it to MIDI. A MIDI file is essentially just a bunch of notations, like uh, on a piece of sheet music, telling the computer which notes to play in what order using this or that instrument. The data that is sent to the music card, which then reproduces the notes with its uh, built-in synthesizer. That's why MIDI music sounds drastically different depending on what sound card you play it on. Tracker music works in much the same way. It is just a file with a bunch of notations, again like sheet music. The difference is that while MIDI tells the sound card what instrument to play and the sound card then has its own idea of what that instrument sounds like, a tracker file contains the actual samples of the instruments within it. A MIDI file can only tell the sound card that this bit should be played on a trumpet. A tracker file says, here's how a trumpet sounds, now go play this bit. In practice, a tracker file contains an instrument list with a bunch of digital samples in it. Say you want a trumpet in your tune because you're a weirdo and you think that trumpets don't sound like a brass factory farting. You sample a trumpet note, just a single note, and the tracker automatically transposes that note when you play different notes. You can also loop samples, like for instance a violin which has a sustained tone. Uh, With some tweaking, 
you can make a sample loop infinitely, essentially define in and out points and uh, play it continuously uh, without it being noticeable that the sample loops. Sometimes, if you do this wrong, you get an audible click when the sample loops, which is very annoying. So being able to read waveforms is something I had to get very good at very early in life. A tracker file contains X amount of channels, and each channel can play one sound, i.e. one note at a time. Channels aren't restricted to a sample, though. Each note you play in a channel can be whatever sample you want. Typically, you'd have a channel with the drums, uh, three samples, like a kick drum, a snare drum, and the hi-hat, which is why you often hear mod music where the hi-hat only comes in between the kick and the snare. The standard mod format has four channels. Scream Tracker 2 had the same four channel channel limitation. Uh, Scream Tracker 3 upped the channel numbers to 16, and Impulse Tracker had 64 channels. The trick to doing tracker music is keeping your file size down, especially if you were doing music for a game back in the early 90s. Uh, Tracker files are proportionate to the size of the digital samples you're using since it stores those samples within the tracker file itself. So if you have very high quality samples like 44 kilohertz and 16 bit, you're going to end up with a large tracker file. That's why some tracker music, especially stuff composed in the early 90s, sounded a bit muffled like an old MP3. It's because the samples it's playing are usually of the 22 kilohertz uh, 8 bit flavor. It's not because they couldn't do high quality sounding music. It's just because the file size would have been too large to comfortably fit on floppy disks along with all the other data. Also, there is, or at least was, a bit of pride in the tracker community on keeping your file size low while still making good sounding music. A knowledge of what type of instruments you can get away with with sampling at a lower quality is key here. So again, at an early age, I was learning all sorts of stuff about sample rates and bit rates without knowing the actual terminology, of course. I just knew 44 sounds better than 22, but takes up more space. Again, I wasn't part of the demo scene, so most of my tracker music was simply done because I wanted to make music. Curse you, Mike Oldfield, you talented Ibiza-dwelling Brexiter. (laughs) F-word. I'm censoring you, trolls. Hope that clears a few things up. Love the show, as you well know. My best to the wife and UM bodler. That doesn't sound nearly as cool as UM baby, but A, all the best. Trolls, And he actually uh, sent a little addendum here, and uh, so he continues on. A little addendum you can insert about channels. I don't think I was too clear on the fact that you can only play one sample in one channel at a time. The amount of channels essentially mean how many samples you can play simultaneously, which becomes a problem if you want to do something like, say, play a chord. A C major chord consists of the notes C, E, and G. Uh, That's three notes you have to play at the same time, and if you only have four channels to work with, then you're taking up three of those channels with just playing a single chord. Well, the solution? Just sample someone doing a chord. A digital sample can be anything, so you could feasibly just sample a C major chord on a piano and play that sample on a single channel. Transposing that up to a D would play the notes D, F, and A, which is a D minor chord, but that's where the he- and that's where the headaches begin. Because the way a piano works, you can't just move your fingers one note and expect a good one note forward and expect a good sounding chord to come out of it. It's going to sound weird. So either you have to get good at music theory and F that, or simply stay away from chords and just play bass lines and melodies, which is what most tracker tunes do anyway. Well, thank you, Trolls. That is amazing. A really, really great uh, overview there of uh, of tracker music. And, uh, you know, I, I do talk about, you know, when I cover games like like One Must Fall and other games that uh, that do uh, support tracker tracker music. I don't talk about a lot of uh, Amiga games. I know the Amiga was was really big into uh, into tracker music and uh, on its platform. So, um, yeah. So thanks very much for that. And uh, 
keep them coming. I do. I do enjoy you. You have generally have the very, very well thought out messages, even when they're long. Okay. So that's enough of that. And let's get to uh, the main event here since I'm already 15 minutes into the show. But uh, you know, I, I do love it when people, uh, when people participate, people write in with their memories and their knowledge, and uh, and you know, I will never know as much about tracker music about then as uh, you know some of the some of you guys do. I will never know as much about the demo scene. I will never know as much about you know base level programming and 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 Amigas and Apple IIs and stuff. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a generalist, so I like to know a little bit about a lot of things and maybe explain them to people. And uh, I need you guys to, uh, to fill in, fill in all my gaps. So let us move on. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, so this time around, we are back to a somewhat old, reliable standby, the Sierra Adventure game. However, this isn't quite the same as the big guys that we've done in the past, This time, we're looking at a one-off game that was published by Sierra, but designed and developed by our friends at Dynamics. Uh, The game was entitled Heart of China and released in the year 1991. So, genre-wise, of course, this is old territory. Uh, I really should start putting together some stats about what proportion of genres I've covered over the years. I'm pretty sure Adventure that this game is would top that list. So for any first time listeners, everyone else has heard this a million times, but an adventure game is a game in which you are placed in control of a single or group of characters who either through their own designs or some twist of fate are issued a quest early on in the game. Now to accomplish said quest, you as the player must guide the protagonist or protagonists through the game's world, interacting with other characters through talk or action to gain information, overcome obstacles, and otherwise progress through the pre-scripted events of your adventure to its conclusion. In your way, stand a series of puzzles. Now, these puzzles can take many forms, some making logical sense, others making sense in the context of the game world, and still even others not making sense in any context. We like to call these moon logic puzzles. Uh, Puzzles range in topic from uh, the simple acquisition of items or information to others involving math, science, physical feats, knowledge of folklore, or other esoteric arts. Uh, Your character manages and manipulates items via an inventory system and uh, can interact with the world through some sort of interface, uh, the most popular of which are the text parser, like uh, Raytheon mentioned not really being too familiar with, or a pure mouse pointer interface, which also has uh, many forms that it can take on from a simple one or two click interface to a series of action icons uh, or uh, you know things like that, which, uh, which must be selected manually. So via speaking with NPCs, interacting with items and, and the surrounding world, uh, possibly completing or avoiding dreaded arcade sequences and otherwise solving all of the game's puzzles will lead you to one or multiple endings, which are hopefully worth the time and the effort you have put in. Okay, off we go into the story of Heart of China, and and the story is especially important in this case. Heart of China is touted as an especially cinematic adventure game, so the setting and the story really do take center stage here. So it is the 1930s, 
we find ourselves in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong in the 1930s is not really a place any Westerner really wants to be. But that doesn't stop our protagonist, former World War I flying ace, Lucky Jake Masters. Now, Jake has had some uh, some less than ideal experiences since the end of the Great War. And these days, he finds himself running a not very profitable aerial tour company, uh, running tours of Hong Kong and rural mainland China. Now, when I say Jake's business is not very profitable, I do really mean that. He is in debt to a set of creditors, the biggest of which is Mr. E.A. Lomax, who has recently threatened Jake with foreclosure on his beloved and business-critical aircraft. Uh, This debt and Jake's deeper and deeper indebtedness to Mr. Lomax presents an opportunity, though. Now, all this background comes inclu- comes uh, comes from the included feelies, uh, both the game's manual and a travel guide that both adds flavor to the game and provides some hints for uh, for various puzzles that you're going to run into. So, as the game's intro begins, though, we don't really see Jake at all. We see an idyllic Chinese village where Kate Lomax, a nurse on what I can only assume is some kind of uh, humanitarian mission to bring healthcare to primitive to the uh, primitive Chinese countryside, she is dressing uh, the wound of a small uh, Chinese farm boy. She's not alone, though. Uh, in addition to the boy and his father, she is being secretly watched by a pretty tough-looking character. As she completes her work on the boy, this man steps into the light and quickly overpowers and kidnaps Kate for his employer, the ruthless Chinese warlord, Li Deng. Of course, this quickly makes big news in China and especially in Hong Kong. Kate's father, E.A. Lomax, wants his daughter back and feels that Lucky's fighting spirit will be, uh, will be the thing that does that. That and, of course, the fact that he basically owns Lucky and his business through his, uh, his, his debts. So... He calls that dead in. Also, just to be sure that Lucky is extra motivated to comply, Lomax gets one of his his local henchmen to head over to the docks and lob a grenade into Lucky's only remaining possession, his houseboat. Not all is lost, though. Uh, Lomax isn't a complete jerk. He offers Lucky an advance of $10,000 US and a reward of $200,000 on the delivery of Kate, which is more than enough to get him out of debt and restart his life anew. So for a little motivation, uh, every day he doesn't bring Kate home, as if he didn't have enough motivation already, Lomax will deduct $20,000 from that reward. This guy is pretty damned harsh. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So that's where the background info stops and the game proper begins. Uh, the intro text cards kind of in the, in the, uh, on the screen through the intro actually do a relatively decent job of outlining all that, that background info. But if you want the full experience, you really do need to go and read that backing material without them. Some people's motivations don't really make a massive amount of sense. So as we begin, we are where we should be standing on the dock in Hong Kong, staring at our exploded houseboat with, uh, a couple of regrets on uh, on our minds. Uh, we're not entirely left to our own devices, though. We were left with two tips from uh, Lomax. The first one is that we should seek out a local renegade ninja named Zhao Chi 
And secondly, more of a threat than a tip, uh, that Kate should come back unharmed. So since we're talking gameplay, let's get into that. Given that this is an adventure published by Sierra, we can usually make a couple of assumptions. However, we have a little bit of a curveball here since the, you know, while this game was published by Sierra, it was actually developed by Jeff Tunnel and his friends over at Dynamics. So while the macro level is similar, the details are quite different from our usual sort of King's Quest-esque uh, AGI or SCI adventure game. Uh, firstly, we see the world through our character's eyes. So, you know, there's no third-person views here, no maneuvering your avatar around on the screen, avoiding pitfalls and other things out to kill you. Um, you know, you maneuver around the world screen by screen, seeing fixed views of the world, and interacting with hotspots using a fairly slick, fairly modern uh, two-button interface. The right mouse button causes you to look at things, and the left button operates those same things. Uh, to move items around on the screen, you left-click, and you drag. Okay, so uh, we need to get around Hong Kong to find this mysterious ninja. To do this, we have a fast travel system that is totally appropriate for the time. When you exit the screen, as we are about to do from the docks, you get a list of locations to visit, and uh, selecting one of those whisks you there via rickshaw. That is, you know, the very traditional uh, old-school sort of Chinese human-powered, uh, human-dragged, uh, uh, to wield carriage type uh, deal. So here we have a few options. We can head to Lomax's, uh, into town, or the airport. Now, the goal of Heart of China, not the goal of the game, but the kind of goal of, I think, the intention of the game, I guess, let's put it that way, is an open cinematic experience. Now, this is a mild spoiler, but if you but, uh, you know, you can do basically anything you want in this game uh, in any order you want. Uh, this, of course, means you can get into the dreaded Walking Dead scenario. Uh, there's a reason you were told to seek out Zao the Ninja. Uh, should you nix that idea, head directly to the airport, you can fly straight to Warlord Li Deng's fortress right away. But now you're stuck. You can't get past the gate. So, you know, you're not really dead because I think in theory you can fly back and uh, and you know, go find, uh, go find Zhao again, but you know, let's, let's skip that part and head straight to town and look around for this dude. Eventually you do find him and convince him to come with you. And this embarks you on an adventure starting from Hong Kong over to mainland China to Kathmandu to the Orient Express. And finally on to Paris, if all goes well, because only good things happen in Paris. As you progress, you'll encounter a few of the game's more unique systems, uh, the first of which is known as the Plot Branch. Uh, while this game prides itself on having multiple solutions to many situations, a Plot Branch is an indication that you've made a fundamental game-altering choice and uh, that there is an alternate path and alternate story uh, at that particular point. So if you get stuck or you simply want to see another aspect of the game, uh, you'd be advised to pay attention at these points and see if there's something else that uh, that you can do. Eventually, if you play your card right, cards right, uh, you and Zhao do rescue Kate, uh, as is expected in a game that's sort of reminiscent of, uh, of, of movies like Indiana Jones and Romancing the Stone. Uh, Lucky and Kate begin to form a relationship as you travel from location to location. Uh, a romance meter also pops up, uh, showing how fond the two of you are of each other at any given point. Uh, as you complete 
the rescue and eventually journey to Paris, the state of that meter will determine some aspects of, of the, uh, the game's ending. Another very important aspect of Heart of China is the concept of controlling multiple characters. Uh, initially, of course, you're only in control of Lucky. However, as your trio fills out, uh, you can switch control to Zhao when, when ninja skill or fluency in the local language is needed, and to Kate when, uh, when a woman's touch might be appropriate. Each character also has their own inventory, um, and aside from actually being separated by story events, uh, the team generally always remains together and can be controlled at will. So this is not really like a maniac mansion type of situation where you're going to move one character to this room and another character to this room. If everyone's together, they move around together. You can't. Uh, it, you just control who you are in charge of, not so much uh, where each individual person goes. Uh, you know, Lucky is your as characters go. Lucky's your common all-rounder who comes equipped with a gun and uh you know that that is also useful in a few situations uh the game's inventory system is also somewhat unique in that it's sort of two-tiered you have a quick inventory which simply displays your items and allows you to drop them into your hands for use uh however if you want to inspect equip or otherwise manipulate anything uh you'll need to switch into the full inventory mode this also shows a portrait of your active character this allows you to like in detail equip items like lucky's gun you would drop that on his hand or you want to put on zao's ninja hood you put that on his on his face and uh the full inventory screen takes a fairly long time to load up like five to ten seconds like long enough where you're like oh come on what is this is this thing crashing or what uh, even in a pretty quick DOS box, I suspect the development team may have run out of time to optimize that little portion of the game and uh, implemented uh, a quid, the quick inventory system as sort of a stopgap to cover up why the full inventory is so damn slow. Uh, there's also two optional arcade sequences in the game. Sequences, I can't say words. Arcade sequences in the game. Uh one where you engage in a high-speed chase in tanks <laughs> and another hand-to-hand -hand combat on top of uh, a certain famous train, which I may have recently recorded another podcast about. Uh, these are explicitly optional, but you know, they're simple enough that they can be beaten with some patience. Uh, it took me quite a few tries to get through the tank chase, but completing it, yeah, it actually feels somewhat rewarding. Finally, as you complete the relatively short adventure, uh, the game comes to multiple endings depending on which plot branches you selected and the state of your romance with Kate. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Focus time. Uh, you know, it's 
It's funny. I may have mentioned over the past few episodes, but I'm still in the process of reading through the backlog of Computer Gaming World mags over at cwmuseum.com. I've recently finished up all the issues from the year 1990, and I'm heading into 1991. And boy, is my gauge of what systems were out at what time all messed up. For example, uh, this game was reviewed in the October 91 issue of CGW, and for some reason that my mind puts that like firmly into the 486 time period, and that is not true at all. You know, 9091 is still the realm of the 286 as the mainstream machine, and the 386 as sort of the new high-end hotness. I guess I need to reset my internal gauge. I think because in 90, I was nine years old, and I think I didn't really have a good gauge of like what performance what processors really were and meant i knew what i had i knew that some people had 386s and and i don't know just when i think back i sort of like the years sort of get mushed up in my head because i was probably so young so with the fact that most folks have 286s around this time uh, the game system requirements do make sense. Uh, per Moby Games, the DOS version of Heart of China needed at least an Intel 8088 or 8086 CPU with a whopping 640K of RAM and OS-wise it required at least DOS 3.3. Graphically, uh, the game supported CGA, EGA, MCGA, Tandy, and finally VGA graphics. Now, you may be asking how you make a game that supports a color range of 4 to 256. It's pretty impressive. Well, they didn't really. Uh, the CGA version uh, was actually just black and white, sort of reminiscent of, uh, of early Mac games like Manhole. I do see some evidence that the MCGA version also displayed black and white, but... Uh, you know, I'm not too sure. I got into a, a conversation with uh, with our buddy Dos Nostalgic on uh, on Twitter, and uh, you know, he was quick to point out that uh, there's no reason it would need to do that since MCGA and VGA are compatible graphics modes in their standard implementations. But um, I'd have to go back and check. I think he may have looked into it and said that the MCGA version did actually display in monochrome, which was uh, a little bit odd, one way or the other. Uh, CGA was definitely uh, just. Uh, just black and white. Uh, the game shipped in a 16 color EGA version and actually looks mm, sor- sort of decent. Um, and finally, the VGA version ran in 320 by 200 at 256 colors. And as we will discuss shortly, made use of high quality digitized actors in uh, in most scenes. Now, to run with VGA graphics, it was recommended that you had at least an IBM AT or 286 uh, with, of course, the requisite VGA graphics hardware. Uh, sound-wise, the game supported all the usual suspects of the time, starting from the good old PC speaker all the way up to the venerable Roland MT32 and everything in between. Uh, the game's music was a very cool, like, 90s sort of action score with some very heavy Asian influence. Uh, the soundtrack was composed by two musicians... Don Latarski and Christopher Stevens. Uh, the two are accomplished musicians and worked together in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, Stevens worked in game music until the mid-90s when he moved to Nashville to pursue a more traditional music career. Uh, the game is a very complex and complete soundtrack, adding quite a bit to its cinematic flavor. ¶¶ 
to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, time to talk dev story. So, this game, along with Willie Beamish that I discussed back in episode 53, and another game that I haven't yet covered called Rise of the Dragon, consist uh, of the entirety of Dynamics's uh, in-house adventure game portfolio. So, how did these games come about from a company more well-known for vehicular sims and action games? Well, I talk about this in great detail back in the Red Baron episode, so let's just summarize it here. So, back in 1981, Damon Sly was a university student living and going to school in Oregon. Uh, On his own, he developed a first-person action tank shoot-'em-up game called Stellar 7 on his Apple II. It was sort of like his own version of, uh, of Battlezone. Now, one day, he walked into a local computer store owned by a man named Jeff Tunnel. Uh, Jeff was a hobbyist programmer with his own fledgling software company where he was struggling to design interesting software using his fairly limited skill in, uh, in, another, in a limited language called Apple Basic. Uh, When Sly came in and showed off Stellar 7, which was written in 6502 Assembler, Tunnel immediately offered him a job at the store and ostensibly also uh, with his until then one-man software development uh, firm. The computer store was quickly sold off and the two set out to form a new joint venture, Software Entertainment Company, or SEC, a software publisher that would distribute Stellar 7 and other games that they came across by, you know, by uh, independent developers. Sadly, this company did not turn into the publishing empire they hoped it would. In 1984, though, they pivoted, renaming renaming their company uh, Dynamics and refocusing from publishing other people's games to making uh, their own games. Sly was a great programmer, and uh, the base code from Stellar 7 turned into their three-space engine, which would be used in some form or another through all of their simulation games uh, up into for the next, uh, you know, probably at least like 10 years. Around the same time, though, uh, two more people were brought on. Kevin Ryan and Richard Hicks. Now, these four men would constitute the owners of the company uh, with a total staff of around seven people at this uh, at this point. Over the next few years, the company would grow and release more games for a variety of platforms. And uh, around 1989, uh, the company's games were selling very well, but their finances were sort of limiting uh, what the what the team could could do to really jump ahead and make the types of games that they they wanted to make. And this is where Sierra came in. Uh, the acquisition of Dynamics by Sierra, which completed in 1990, was really what made the next steps for the company possible. And uh, that that next step, uh, whether they define it this way or not, was sort of a splitting of priorities. Uh, the main line of the company would absolutely stick to their core competency, high quality 3D simulations uh, around the time of uh, acquisition. They would have released A10 Tank Killer, and, uh, you know, the, their next game that would launch post-acquisition would be one of the greatest flight sims of all time, Red Baron. Now, on the other side of pushing on into, you know, developing the three space engine and their simulations, there was a bit of a diversification. Uh, you know, maybe this was inspired by their talks with Sierra, maybe the market in general, but, uh, you know, the four-man leadership of Dynamics 
decided that it was time to dip their foot into the adventure gaming space. So, much like Damon Sly's approach with Stellar 7, their first adventure game, Rise of the Dragon, would be built with sort of a layered architecture in mind. A reusable engine with specific game content scripted on top of it. Now, as I always say when I talk about engines around this time, this is common practice today. This isn't even something we think about. You build a game engine, and then on top of that game engine, you build a game. Uh, but this was really in its infancy in uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. So, you know, despite the fact that the merger with Sierra was going on, there wasn't any really crosstalk here as far uh, as I can tell. They'd, they'd certainly seen and played AGI and SCI games, but their engine, the Dynamics Game Development System, or DGDS, uh, was entirely homegrown, built in conjunction with the creative aspects of, uh, of Rise of the Dragon. Jeff Tunnel led the creative work on the game, and Kevin Ryan led the development of the engine. Now, Kevin Ryan wrote a great article on his time working on DGDS and all of its, uh, all of its games. Uh, he does point out some unique features of the engine, including the fact that the development system actually worked over a LAN, a local area network, meaning, uh, you know, instead of having each game designer work on their own copy of the game, all of them could work together in the same environment. Uh, these days, this is accomplished through uh, through systems known as source control, uh, systems like Git, or Team Foundation Server, or, or other things like that, Mercurial, and blah, 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 blah. It's a whole whack of them. Uh, SVN. Uh, you know, th- these things now that are in place make source control fairly trivial to accomplish. But back in the late 80s, you know, most development houses were still passing disks around to each other. Oh, hey, I'm working on this file. Don't work on it until I give you the updated one. Or we're going to have to, like, muck around with merging our changes. Uh, you know, I, I find merging code through source control to be a challenge today, but it must have been immensely challenging back in the day as teams teams grew bigger. So much like uh, Sierra's AGI and SCI engines, DGDS allowed non-programmers to script game events and drop resources into the game via a much simpler set of tools and scripting language uh, that didn't require that you have a deep background in, in software development. You didn't need to know, you know, what, what subroutines were or, you know, if it was object-oriented, what object-oriented programming was or, you know, how memory management worked or how registers and display drivers and all that, how any of that worked. You just, you know, scripted the actions that were going to happen in your game and uh you know you work within the framework that is provided if the engine needed to do something if if the engine didn't do a thing that you needed it to do to make your game work a request would filter down to kevin and his team and they would sort of iteratively add additional features to to the engine so the team built out their first adventure rise of the dragon which is was a a blade runner inspired mystery that featured uh, many of the same features we'll see in Heart of China. Uh, one one feature that was highly touted in Rise of the Dragon was alternate paths to solving a puzzle. That is, the plot branches that we previously discussed in Heart of China. Now, in Rise of the Dragon, reviewers did have one issue with uh, with this original form of branching. You never actually knew if you had passed one or not. So, you know, in the spirit of iteration and improvement in Heart of China, the plot branch alert was added in to signify when, when a, 
a story fork was was going to happen. Uh, in addition, the art style of Heart of China was to be substantially different from uh, Rise of the Dragon, where Rise of the Dragon sort of sported traditional hand-drawn graphics and somewhat cold, kind of futuristic color palettes. Heart of China would warm up the colors and uh, they would maintain the hand-painted backgrounds, but uh, really jack up the realism level on those backgrounds and swap out the animated characters for fully digitized actors. And now, the Dynamics team had done this once before in a previous, I think it was an action game called uh, David Wolf Secret Agent. However, that game was an EGA, and uh, digitizing the characters into EGA was uh, fairly straightforward. Now, to make the characters work and look good in 256 color VGA was a much bigger challenge, and uh, and Jeff Tunnel states that... Um, you know, the art had to be almost completely reworked two times during the game's development to make it actually work and not look uh, not look miserable. So, you know, not only did all the technology and the art have to work, but all the trappings of a, of a movie set started to worm their way into the small room that was used to take photos of the actors for, for this digitizing process. Uh, you know, there wasn't a huge budget, so the bulk of the actors were simply simply staff, but even those amateurs needed makeup and costumes and direction. And, uh, you know, this attention to detail really did come across in the game. You know, Heart of China showed us a very immersive, cinematic, and quirky world, like I said, inspired by movies such as Indiana Jones and Romancing the Stone and sort of the pulp fiction, if you will, that, uh, you know, that, that inspired those movies as well. Uh, Jeff Tunnell led the story development of the game. And, uh, you know, while action and adventure was the backdrop of heart of china the main thrust of the game was really focused on the relationships between the game's characters you know lucky and zhao turn into this sort of classic comic and straight man duo and of course there were the various directions which uh the player's actions affect lucky and kate's romantic relationship and uh you know in fact all the events of the game really are affected by the decisions you make about how the three main characters interact with each other finally as a, a little bonus uh dynamics existing industry leading three space 3d engine that we've talked about that was used on uh their flight sims and red baron and all that was also plugged into the game to uh to facilitate the tank chase uh, arcade sequence for better or for worse uh, depending on your stance on arcade sequences in adventure games. Now, despite all this work and all this rework and all this craziness and blah, 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 Heart of China released only about a year after Rise of the Dragon, and it actually reviewed fairly well. It was touted not only for uh, its great period atmosphere and graphical fidelity, but also its compelling story and characters. Now, after Heart of China, Dynamics would release only one more game using DGDS, The Adventures of Willie Beamish. It wouldn't be their last adventure game, but it was their last adventure game using their uh, homegrown engine. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, so where can you pick up Heart of China today? Well, yet again, thanks to our friends at GOG.com, you can grab it very easily for a mere $5.99 USD or $7.99 Canadian if you uh, happen to be Canadian. Everyone else, do your own conversions. 
As always, the game runs just fine, and I was able to get it working with my true-to-life real MT32 with very, very little effort. So if you guys want to play the game, jump over there, throw six bucks at uh, GOG, and play the game. Say whatever is in your mind freely. Our conversation will be kept in strict confidence. Okay, as if we didn't have enough emails at the beginning of the show, we have a few more, and I say that in jest because, like I said, and I always say, I love our emails, keep them coming. So our first email comes from Ziggy, and he writes, Hey Joe, first off, I have a beef. An episode or two ago, you mentioned the Computer Gaming World archive was online. I went online and downloaded every issue from 1985 to 1999. As a result, in the past few weeks, no work has been done at the office by me, Well, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Disregard the beef. Reading about the olden times games, as my daughter calls them, brought back fond memories of classics such as the review of Their Finest Hour and Battle of Britain, or Their Finest Hour of the Battle of Britain. It also brought cringes, but also laughs at some of the game ads. I especially enjoyed reading the ads advertising parents to get their kids into computers or else America will fall behind Japan. I wanted to uh, return the favor, though, one of the game reviews in CGW led me to the Dev Game Club podcast. Uh, it involves two game developers discussing old games, primarily DOS era stuff. I highly recommend it. Uh, the podcast mentioned a book that came out a few years ago from Hardcore Gaming 101, The Guide to Classic Graphic Adventures. It's a 700-page monster that covers about 200 adventure games from King's Quest One to Gemini Rue. Uh, I recently grabbed it, and it's a great read. Going further down this rabbit hole, I discovered Bitmap Books. They publish coffee table books on retro games. They have a Kickstarter now for a visual compendium of Sega Master System games. In August, they are releasing a book on the art of point-and-click adventure games. It's a 500-page book with art from popular 80s and 90s adventure games, along with commentary and designer interviews. It's not cheap, about $80 Canadian with shipping, but it looks gorgeous. Okay, on to Heart of China. I've played almost every Sierra and LucasArts adventure game of the late 80s and early 90s, but I've never played a Dynamics game during that time. Despite being more inclined towards realistic themes and desperately wanting to play all three Dynamics adventure games, I did watch my friend play through most of the game. I guess technically played it together with him. Uh, He was a second-generation Taiwanese immigrant, and according to him, his parents only let him get the game because they wanted him to learn about his culture. Little did they know. Uh, We did get some good laughs at the caricatures within the game, though, understanding even then just how ridiculous they were. My friend and I were huge Indiana Jones fans, and we were too dumb to get through LucasArts' Fate of Atlantis, so hard to try to scratch the indie itch uh, well and progressed fast enough that our ADD was satisfied. I remember when we finished the game the first time and got one of the bad endings, uh, we didn't realize at the time that the game had multiple endings, and we were pretty disappointed with the ending we had got. We left the game alone for months, but got bored one summer day and fired it up for a few hours, and that's when we discovered solutions we hadn't seen before, and it occurred to us that maybe the game had other endings. We stayed up until 6 a.m. that night playing the game and trying to find other endings. I think we ended up getting three out of the four. Uh, we only stopped playing because my friend's father woke up for work and told told us off for staying up so late. Keep up the great work. The podcast gets better with each episode. I hope you resist the urge to enjoy the amazing weather our city has been having and put out another episode or two in 
August. Well, thank you, Ziggy. And I was wrong. I, I said Ziggy was our first email, but he was our only uh, only email. And uh, and that's great. I'm going to go check out that uh, Game Dev uh, Game Dev Club podcast. And uh, yeah, you know, I I do have some uh, some knowledge of of bitmap books and 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 those guys. Yeah, they're a little pricey for my taste, but uh, but who knows? Uh, definitely worth uh, worth checking out, especially if the art is is so damned nice. I know uh, some of my my art friends on uh, online have been uh, have been talking about them off and on for a little while. So again, thanks for that and. Uh, Let's get on with the big end of the show. So, does Heart of China hold up today? Well, if you're looking for a not-too-serious adventure in the vein of Indiana Jones, then yes, Heart of China is a great choice. As I've said, the art, the writing, the characters, the music, and heck, even the arcade sequences are all a ton of sort of lighthearted, pulpy fun. Uh, you know, the only negative things I've got to say are, you know, like Ziggy sort of implied, if you get offended by mild Asian racial stereotypes, sort of caricatures of uh, of what a Chinese person might look like and talk like in, uh, you know, in the 30s in China, you may want to steer clear. The puzzles are a little bit on the simpler side. Uh, the game's a little bit short, but uh, you know, aside from those small quibbles, Heart of China is a great entry into Dynamics's small adventure game portfolio. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, so that is that. Thanks as always to everyone who wrote in uh, next time. I will be covering a series I, I have a decent amount of experience with, but actually skipped the the beginning of. Uh, we're going to be jumping all the way from 1991 to 1998 with the Unreal series, uh, likely with a bigger focus on maybe the first game in the series, and then maybe the you know we'll talk about. Uh, I, I played a ton of Unreal Tournament uh, 2004, but uh, there's a couple games that came before that, so you know we'll talk about the series and uh, and see what there is to see with unreal so you can send emails as always or audio comments as everyone has to podcast at thanks to rick moyer for all his great audio work you can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com don't forget if you enjoy the show please feel free to head over to patreon.com slash umbcast and throw me a couple of bucks it helps me uh keep the keep the show up and running pay for web hosting podcast hosting pay for uh you know, the games I review and, and all that stuff. So it really does uh, help keep the lights on over here. Uh, you can check out the show notes for this episode and every other episode at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group over at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast. Uh, I'm going to be totally uh, putting up some videos on Unreal and... Uh, you know, now that I'm over my horrible month of basically feeling like crap, I'm going to jump back on the uh, the bandwagon of uh, releasing a video every Friday for my ongoing series. I'm currently playing through uh, the original Fallout, so uh, look for that in a couple of days. And uh, you can uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, and that is that. And we will see you next time for Unreal here in the Upper Memory Block.
Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.